Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And the guy who promises not to constantly compare this book to Song of Achilles, even though it that is actually why I chose it. Duncan Nickel. Yeah, 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 it's, um, that was a serious challenge, actually, was reading this book. Good book, but I guess that's what happens when you pick a book deliberately to choose to compare it. You're like, oh, is this really com- a fair comparison? Are they, they're kind of trying to do the same thing, though, aren't they? Oh, but they're coming at it from really different angles. Ah, I don't know what to do. You know what I mean. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. So this book, Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker, I picked up with... Well, I didn't pick it, actually. Geordie picked it last week for book club. Yeah, technically, technically I picked it, but only because I'm a nice guy. And I really wanted to read this book. (laughs) Yes, yes. So last year, at the risk of breaking our promise immediately, last year we read Song of Achilles around this time. And originally, Duncan, I think you were going to say at some point in the future we should read David Gemmell's version of The Fall of Troy. But instead, you sort of stumbled across another version of the Iliad. Isn't that right? I did indeed. It was in fact, it was in a it's, it's very nice environment. It's in a quirky little bookshop in York. I saw mm. Women of Troy. It was actually the book I saw. Um, right, and I was very excited by it. Yeah, the sequel. I was very excited by it because we just read someone kids, oh, this is such a good, another take, another reinterpretation. So instead of buying it, because I'm not an impulse buyer, I had to limp myself while on holiday. I buy a lot of books when I'm away. I came home, <laughs> I spoke to my sister about it. It's like, I saw this book. Like, have you heard of it? And she went, yeah, I've, I've got the first one. Do you want it? I was like, yes, please. So here we are. So and- after you'd got it from the public library of Duncan's little sister, what did you make of it? Oh, well, that is a good question. And I'm a little bit... I want to lay down like some opening lines because I, I have a kind of a weird kind of feeling about this book. Firstly, I also have some weird feelings about it, but my feelings are overall very positive. So am I. Like, so are my feelings. My feelings are... Is that what are... makes them weird? Yes. No. <laughs> right. This is a good book and I enjoyed this book and I would recommend this book. book. If someone came up to me and went, hi, I would like to read a retelling of the Iliad. I'd go, sure, here, let me break out my several recommendations. And if they went, oh, awesome. But which one do I start with? Like, which one's your top pick? I would go, not Silence of the Girls. Read Song of Achilles. But Silence of the Girls should be your second read. You've already broken the promise. (laughs) No, and that's the problem. That's why this book is a good book and it deserves to be critiqued and analysed and delved into and enjoyed on its own because it is a very good book. But I always had that little thing at the back of my head. Geordie, how did you feel? So, I think from this point on, we we have to keep our promise. We will not mention Song of Achilles or... Who wrote Song of Achilles? Uh, Madeline Miller. Madeline Miller. Thank you, Duncan. Very well remembered. Duncan's good at remembering names. He just sucks at pronouncing them. Um, as we will learn later. As we will learn later. Or quite soon. Uh, we That is now unmentionable. We will not mention it for another, let's say, 50 minutes. Who's timing it? The, the, the second half of the episode. We'll, we'll reserve a little spot at the end for dear Madeline. And up till that point, we will act as though we've never read that book before. We've had no experience of the Iliad aside from 
maybe uh, reading the Odyssey when you were younger. Because we all did that. Watching some clips of Troy on YouTube <laughs> and seeing the overly sarcastic summary of the Iliad. Where we all get our teachings, let's be honest. Exactly. <laughs> okay, Geordie, summarise your feelings and then I want to ask you if you've read anything else before we really dive in. I will extremely briefly go over if I've read anything else. And the answer is yes. I'm still reading more Elric. Uh, I'm really, really on a on a roll with Elric. Uh, I've just finished Bane of the Black Sword, one of the earliest collections. I mean, uh, because the timeline is so confusing, not the earliest collection, but some of the earliest stories written like the late 60s. Um, which have been collected a decade later, but whatever, who's counting? Uh, and I've just started Stormbringer, and woof, really enjoying them. Actually, some of the stuff I want to talk about in The Silence of the Girls, I can actually draw back to Elric, and it's particularly its depiction of women, and I think that is actually quite helpful, so I'm glad I read that. Duncan, have you read anything else briefly before going on to Silence of the Girls? Very briefly, I have once again fallen into my addiction to Star Wars comics. Jordi, oh I know there was a sale on a sale on the Kindle store for the epic collections of the old like Legends uh, Star Wars comics. So I went and I picked up. I've got Tales of the Jedi. I've got Old Republic, Menace Revealed, Empire. Mm, yeah, it's really fun. Particularly Tales of the Jedi. I really recommend these comic books. They came out in like that kind of early mid 90s era of star wars before the prequels but they're still trying to write like new stories out there so it has not quite as bad is this before or after dark this is after dark empire but what these ones do they're written to be in the distant past so even further in the past than like the old republic video games and it gives them a lot of room particularly the artists to come up with these really kind of more out there looks for spaceships and things and these little motifs mm. there's a really nice detail in these which is that the really old lightsabers don't have enough power on their own to like they have cables yeah they have cables connected to power packs so there's this big thing where mm. like the general like i shall disconnect my lightsaber from its power pack and i swear never to connect them again or in a duel it's like they're trying to like cut the cable to disarm mm. their opponent instead of just cutting off their opponent's arm, which they just do later. So there's some really nice elements there, which I think it's worth exploring. But nowhere near as high fiction as Silence of the Girls, which is the only book I read in this time. Now, Duncan, you asked me what my opinion is on Silence of the Girls, and if I had to quickly summarise it, Silence of the Girls is a... Oh, damn it, I almost, I almost broke it right away. Silence of the Girls is completely independent... A feminist retelling of the Iliad, very specifically from the perspective of the women who are often sidelined in the story. The titular Silence of the Girls is based around the historical fact that, you know, ancient Greece was super misogynistic and there were certain values like women couldn't go out without being veiled and have a voice in the eventual Greek democracies that showed up. And to be clear... Obviously, ancient Greece is a big time period with lots of kind of subcultures. So we're not saying that there were there were some better and worse bits. 
just Duncan, who are you trying not to offend? It was one of the most misogynistic cultures to ever exist. I feel like I was always trying to not to offend like one other subculture of ancient Greece compared to another. Like I was going to upset like the Athenians and not the Spartans or something in that statement. The Athenians were worse. (laughs) They were the worst ones. Fuck the Athenians. Okay, in that case, I really do. (laughs) In that case, I really didn't want to upset the ancient Spartans, apparently. I mean, uh, more so not as dickish as the Athenians when it comes to women, to, to my understanding. But there is specifically, Duncan, we're not even talking about ancient Greece. This is Mycenaean Greece. This is pre-ancient Greece. This is ancient Greece squared. And this is ancient Greece, not only from what we understand as what it was, but also as it is presented in the Iliad, isn't it? These are the characters that get one name or a couple of mentions while the epic is written about the other male characters. Exactly. So the the main, main character is Briseis, who, barring the exceptions of some other books, which we can't talk about, is very much always a background character. So much of a point that her relationship to Achilles and Patroclus is often interpreted in different ways. For example, that she was in love with one of the two of them, which is odd because she was a slave. She was, and that's the opening of this book. It is the story how Briseis, who is a princess of her in her own right, queen. of her own see the queen. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she's the queen of her. Is it Linus? Linus? I, 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 so I can't Linus? do any favors here, Duncan, because you're good at remembering names, and I'm bad at that. So she is the queen of her own little Trojan city state. Yes, a city state loyal to Troy, which is sacked in. I don't even believe it's particularly the early days of the war. I believe the war has been raging already for close to nine years at this point. That's right. When Achilles and his fellow, I was about to say their name now, and I'm going to get this pronouncing wrong. These are Meridians? That doesn't sound right. Myrmidons. Myrmidons, thank you. And I'll see his best friend, Patroclus. Patroclus. Patroclus is how I mispronounced it. Uh, In an episode which we're not allowed to talk about. Right, Patroclus. 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 Brilliant. How to pronounce the name with Geordie? Patroclus. 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 Yeah! Patroclus. Take her city, murder her brothers, slaughter all the men, and capture the remaining women and drag them back to their camp to be their slaves. And in many instances, be their bed slaves. Yes. In this... Oh yeah, right from the top. I don't think we can actually talk about this book without handing out some pretty hefty uh, trigger warnings around sexual violence and sexual servitude. Uh, I feel like we haven't had to do this for a while, like, maybe since our Berserk episode, but, yeah, it's a really heavy subject, and it's essential to to the actual topic of discussion, so go ahead and be warned that we're gonna have to talk about it, uh, because you can't not talk about it in this book. That's what it's about. You can't. What I would say on the matter in terms of how this book approaches it is that I think this book does it... Firstly, very respectfully, um, because it's trying to kind of open up the subject, but also it never gets graphic. We, When we deal with particularly sexual violence, in very particularly in Berserk, there was examples where you think, this is grotesque, this is gratuitous, this isn't serving a point, I wish this wasn't here. Whereas I never felt that in this book. 
I think it did what it had to do. So if you are someone who maybe has that concern, I would recommend reading, still, you know, trying the book and just seeing how you feel when sort of approaching the matter. If it turns you, if you're concerned with the gratuitous nature of it, obviously if you're concerned with the subject matter in general, that there's no game around it, that is what the book is about. Now, um, seeing things from Briseis' perspective, um, when we say that, we basically mean you get to see the last days of the Iliad play out. It's sort of like reading a fan fiction about, like, an established story. I mean, yeah, it's a change in perspective, right? That's the... I don't want to say the gimmick, but that's, like, the lens of the story. You say, like, sort of like a fan fiction, but this wasn't written by Homer. So, and I'm seeing Pat Barker as a fan, and they didn't... She didn't lighten it off Homer, did she? So... It's this kind of a fan fiction by legal definition. I I guess I guess that's right. I mean, more it's more like writing a public domain, domain work, isn't it? It most like certainly anyone is. can write a Sherlock Holmes novel. Actually, a slight correction of that: anyone can write a Sherlock Holmes novel in which he's a jerk. You're not allowed to write a Sherlock Holmes novel in which he's nice because he was only nice after the Reichenbach fall. See, this is the this is the deep cuts which people are going to start getting very challenged on, isn't it? When, when the lawyers yes. come out and go, actually, uh, you appear to have started to use... I'm trying to think of a good example here. <laughs> what does Disney own, which they get touchy about? Oh, yeah, you can use Mickey Mouse, but only they're like only exactly as he appears in that first iteration. It, yeah, a I think it's Steve Willy now, actually, Duncan. I think you're exactly right. Oh, Winnie the Pooh, that's what you're thinking of. Oh, the details that like Disney adds. I think that'll be the one. They'll be like, excuse me, but we added that detail. You've turned Piglet pink. Oh yeah, for example, you can do you can do Alice in Wonderland, but you can't have like a blonde Alice, and she can't wear like um the blue and white. So like there's a spooky goth video game version of Alice in Wonderland, and she had to have black hair because if she had blonde hair, Disney would have come down like a ton of bricks. Oh yeah, American McGee's Alice. Sorry, that is way too off topic. <laughs> this book deserves better than that. But exactly the point. I don't think that's bad though. I don't think calling it, we're not calling it fan fiction in a derogatory way. It's a new perspective on existing events. I would say that maybe if you're someone who may had a little bit more foreknowledge on the Iliad, I'm not sure where if that would help you or not. I certainly don't feel. I that... think it definitely would. I don't know. Like, they don't actually explain who Ajax is, you know? Do they not? Or maybe I didn't notice that. I don't think they really adequately explain the whole start of the war either. I know they say Helen was taken. But they don't explain, yeah, and why did everyone else go after her? That's true. They don't do that. Uh, I hadn't noticed that. Yeah, I think it is for people who are already familiar with the Iliad. You kind of are. And I think part of that also plays into the shock factor. Like, damn it, I can't. In this book, you kind of expect Odysseus to be a nice guy. If not a nice guy, you expect him to be kind of a hero because he's the hero of the Odyssey, which is one of the most significant greek myths of all time and like a really popular one and he's the hero of that but he's not heroic in this book he's an asshole completely and i think having those different perspectives on characters works better if you then know what they're set up to be particularly the character of like hector if like this is my only knowledge of hector i don't know how affected i would be in his death or the fact that there's a great deal made about his body being returned properly to Troy in this book because 
I all I know I about Hector slightly screw that very last one, but the rest of your point, yes. Well, all I know about Hector is that he's fighting on the Trojan sides and that he kills a character that I kind of like. I don't know anything more. Is he good? Is he honourable? Is he nice to his family? Mm. Do they like him? I know that he's brave and hits the battlefield. I'm like, yeah, but people call Achilles brave and he goes out onto the battlefield. And trust me, he isn't all rainbows and sunshine. No. So is Hector just another Achilles or is he more? I, I just don't know. From this book alone, you, you need that kind of wider context, I think, to appreciate what's being subverted and where. Exactly. And, you know, as you go through the story, you're encountering a lot of familiar characters again. Uh the exception of one throughout this whole book, we got Ajax, we got Agamemnon, we got Odysseus, we got Achilles, we got Patroclus. Where's my guy Diomedes, Duncan? Where is he? That guy fought Ares. He, where is he? Come on! But eventually he did show up and it, it was nasty. He was a jerk. Isn't there also a pair, like a younger or the older or the small and the, the big? Yeah, greater Ajax and lesser Ajax. It's just Ajax. <laughs> lesser in this. Ajax never shows up. He's just Ajax. They don't mention any lesser Ajaxes. But he also doesn't. Sh- um, never mind. I can't mention what other books he doesn't show up in. That's fine. That's absolutely okay. You're doing appalling at this. <laughs> so let's just outline the plot then for people who don't know the Iliad. If you don't know the Iliad, by the way, Sarcastic Productions do an amazing video. Running for the yeah, it's very. It's actually one of the earliest work. It's the first time which where Red, I think, actually like animated the whole thing, because the only visual source material she could actually work with was the movie Troy, which doesn't really have much to do with the Iliad. Very upsetting that we've not gotten a new reinterpretation of it. Duncan, have you ever seen the movie Troy? I actually haven't. I started watching it once no, on like either. late night television. And all I can remember thinking is, I can't tell if this is low budget or high budget. It's got Brad Pitt. That's pretty high budget. Exactly. But then nothing high budget was happening. <laughs> it's like, okay, you're sitting in a tent. You're standing in a desert field. Okay, two men are fighting. I see two men fight. Uh, that, that's it. No armies. It's very, it's a very, I thought for the little I saw and what I've seen online, it's a very visually dull movie. It's very yellow from what I've seen. There's a lot of just sand. Uh, you know, this puts this film in perfect perspective. I've been going to the same holiday home down in Cornwall now for like nine years. And there's a copy of Troy on this like old DVD rack that is sort of half in the sun. And the copy of Troy is now at the point where all you, it's like white. And you just see this vague like ghostly half blue <laughs> outline of Brad Pitt's face on the cover. <laughs> And I say like it's never Brad been Pitt's, used. A poster of Brad Pitt after a nuclear bomb has gone off. Like, never been used, never been touched. And every time I look at it and I go, nah, watch Bridget Jones. Very good. But I would like to see a telling of the idiot, by the way. I think, I, do you know what I want to see? I want to see the guys who did, like, the Castlevania animated, or they did one called Blood of Zeus. Give me that. Give me the full idiot of all the gods in some, like, animated form. I think that'd be awesome. Just ideas into the world. Positive ideas. There is no... Every time someone wants to say, I want to see this animated, like, you know who I want to do it? I want to see those guys from Castlevania do it. (laughs) And the lead director from that will keep saying, listen, I don't have the license to any of these properties. I want to make a berserk anime so bad, but they won't let me. 
I know. I think I've said the exact same thing about Conan the Barbarian as well. I think I've got, yeah, I want it animated. I want it done by those guys. Mm-hmm. They're clearly very talented. Uh, can we talk about the Iliad? So the Iliad, or at least the last nine years of the Iliad, it basically comes down to a series of beats. And this story goes down beat by beat. Everything needs to happen. It's the capture of Briseis. It's her claiming by Achilles. It's the subsequent return, or rather the refusal to return, Chryseis, the uh, an important Trojan princess, uh, by Agamemnon, which leads to a plague striking the camp. Eventually, they make Agamemnon give her back, but in return, Briseis must be handed over, which makes Achilles very mad, so he sulks in his tent, and uh, there's a lot of sulking. Um, but that's kind of a point of the Iliad. It's most, the Iliad is mostly about Achilles in his tent. And then the death of Patroclus, Achilles' revenge, the butchering of Hector, the return of Hector, and then Achilles' subsequent death, and then the sacking of Troy. Like, it's just the Iliad. It's literally just the Iliad, but without the fighting bits, you know? Sorry, are you saying Sons of the Girls is literally just the Iliad, but without the fighting bits? It's literally just the Iliad, but from the ladies' perspective. Like, it's exactly what it says in the tin. Okay. I think we need to make something really clear about this, and that is, like, the strongest part of this book is... It's the voice of the book, right? It's the voice of Briseis, and the fact that you see things from her perspective. And it's not just the novelty of seeing the male characters from outside their own little bubble of presumptions and seeing from someone else's perspective. It's just that Pat Barker's really good at writing prose and description and showing things in a really vivid and potent way through Briseis's eyes. How do I want to respond to this? I first need to agree to your last point. I do like Pat Barker's prose. I felt of, particularly compared to the previous bit we read, Jarell of Jewelry, <laughs> these prose were clean, they were nice, it was easy to read this book. I sat down and I read the first third of this book in a single sitting. It just flew wow. by. It was so easy, not in terms of maybe content, but in the way it was written, to consume, to know what was going on, to know the world I really appreciated from Pat Barker does something which another author that I really enjoy does, and that's give time and description to food. Rody, <laughs> I find that nothing brings you into a setting more than knowing. Seriously, though, the scenes in this where, they're just, where she's describing the cheese, she's crumbling on top of things, and you're like, yes. Okay, we're there. I taste it. Yep, it's a hot day. Good. What we'll have the wine? Excellent. I know exactly how strong the wine is. It's not the watered down stuff we were drinking last <laughs> night. This is the hard stuff. We're all on the page. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Um, there's no denying that. I, I really like that. I really like the descriptions of this place and the camp. I had a great sense of where. That's true. What, well, I wouldn't say where the camp is. I'd say like the camp's by the sea. Troy's in the middle. But it. But. Uh, but it, it, I got a sense of what it was the like. Atmosphere. The atmosphere. The atmosphere is yeah. what she captures. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I couldn't map like, it when out. When things are horrible horrible and rancid in the camp, you feel how horrible and rancid it is. When things are especially dark and brooding in the camp, you feel that. Like, she's really good at capturing that and expressing it to the audience. But, Geordie, you said about Bryce's perspective, and that is true. Geordie, how is this book written? What is the... What do you call it? What, what is the... Is it, It's not second person. It must be... 
yeah, so Duncan, this this is a really good point. So, all right, so this the first third of this book, as Duncan said, the one you flew through, that makes sense, because that's all from Perseus' perspective, and it's all first-person past tense. Specifically, it's like a it's like a biography. It's Briseis looking back over her life and telling you, just like in um, The Black Tongue Thief, for example. It's the exact same. But the second and third part, every so often you get a different sort of chapter, which is also past tense, but is third person, and it's also omniscient. So... On one hand, we have Briseis, we're in her head, we're sitting down and we're listening to her. And then we have a really different style of narration, which is the bits about the men. And it's more distant, as you might expect. But it's also omniscient, so it can jump in between people's heads. Like sometimes you're in Odysseus's head, and sometimes you're in Patroclus's head. And sometimes in one particular scene, you jump back and forth between what Patroclus is thinking and what Achilles is thinking whilst they're alone in their tent together. Right, Geordie. Excellent. Now, this is why it's one of those things I said I felt confused about this book. And there's two things that I was kind of iffy on. And this was one of them. I understand that. I felt. Yeah, I understand that. Firstly, just the change, the mere concept of going from the first to the third. And I read other books that have done this, you know, uh, was it called? Not Stone, Stone, Stone Sky? Well, yeah, 50, you're 50, talking 50 about season. the fifth season. That's the one. What's it? The Obelisk Gate. Stone Sky is the last book in the series, isn't it? I got that right. Anyway, fifth season. I mean, I think the Stone Sky is the second one, but fifth season, great book, and we get mm. one one character is done in second person, now character is done in first person, and it changes, and that's fine. For some reason, though, because we spend so long at the start of this book in the first person, when it first switches to third person, I genuinely had this moment of. Wait, what? When, when, when did? Wait, what? When, when did you do this? What happened? Like, I actually got several pages in and went. Excuse me. Yeah, in the audiobook, they actually changed narrators. That would be very helpful. There was a bit really at the end of this book where there's a break in the page, and then it starts a new paragraph because we jump from first to third. It's still the same chapter, mm. and it completely blew my mind because we went from I and I felt this and I looked out, and then we had a break, and then it went. Briseis walked up the hill. And I'm like, why, why are you doing that? Just just keep that yeah. bit in the in first person. I do, why am I disconnected from her now? I, yeah, I so, didn't like this as a choice. I, I see. I think I know why. I'm sure you're about to tell me why. But I, <laughs> as a general reading experience, this didn't work for me. Geordie, what do you think? As you say, Duncan, you know, change in perspective are nothing too great. For example, you know, you mentioned earlier um, descriptions of food referring to a Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire and George Armand. He changes characters' perspectives all the time because you have all these different characters he wants to tell a story about. But all of them have the exact same style. They're all written from the same sort of perspective, the same type of perspective. They're all third-person limited. Um, when you change in between you know, this style, another, it's sort of like switching between stereo sound and mono sound. Or, for example, if I were to start speaking out of one of your ears and then suddenly switch to the other one. Duncan, I'm going to do that in the edit. I'm going to jump between their ears. Isn't that going to be freaky and weird? And you got to understand that, like, it's disconcerting. And in fact, Duncan, there have been times in the past where I've sat down and I've started planning out a story. 
And I've realized at a certain point that I wouldn't be able to tell the same story without swapping between different types of perspective. And I abandoned those stories because I never wanted to write a story like this, where one part of it was in first person and another part was in a different style altogether, um, because I think it's inelegant. I think I think it's clunky. And I see why it was chosen in this book. It's necessary for many scenes to go forward, but a necessary choice is to me not the same as the best choice. So thank you for kind of giving that lead in. I feel that this was deemed a necessary choice because Pat Barker is not just telling by Sears' story in the Iliad. She's also trying to tell you the Iliad. And you can't tell the Iliad if you are limited, I think, to Bryce's perspective. Or at the very least, you would have to tell so much offhandedly or have, like, Bryce say to you, I found out later from this, 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 and this, and this, mm. and that apparently they were like this, that that would probably... Yes. Probably have been worse. Mm-hmm. I'm speculating. Yeah, then... It would have taken out a lot of punch. But there are scenes... But there are scenes, two scenes specifically in my head, where I went to myself, why isn't Briseis here? Like, she can just be in the background, being ignored. That's what she's done for most of the book. She, we don't have to see this from the slightly distant, is this Patroclus? Is this Patroclus? Is this Achilles? Is this Odysseus? Every scene that in, is in Achilles' you know? tent, I believe, could have her there. Even if she is just meant to be there as an observer to these events that are in the Iliad, you can have her there serving the wine or what have you. And then we get to see the fact that not only has she seen these events at play, but we get to then hear her immediate thoughts and reactions, which I want because this is her yep. story. And you could even work in her struggles, you know. These are the moments where she's really having those battles, where she wants to outwardly express herself over what's being debated or what's going on outside her control. Mm. And she has to control herself or or try and not antagonise the situation. And it's not done. <laughs> there's, also the, there's also the question of biases. And the question of biases, I don't mean like, uh, whether we see something from the lens as almost perspective, it's the the story itself is biased towards particular characters and how they are able to enter scenes and learn information. For example, we never get access to Agamemnon's head. And that would be fine. It would be sort of be excused. You would never have to wonder what was in his head if it was always from Briseis' uh, perspective. But the fact that it could be omniscient, we could get access to information. He's not a distant figure. He's always present. Um, there are scenes when you sort of like say, hey, I kind of wish I knew what Agamemnon was going in his head now. And Another I could know that, way this could and I don't worked, get to know that. I think this is an opportunity. Again, I don't speculate on the book that wasn't written, but something that I think I might have liked is in those scenes with me with Agamemnon, how about... Again, I shouldn't do this. Speculate on how I would have written it, or I would like yeah, to have been written. But, sorry, I'm about to do it. <laughs> I sometimes think there's an opportunity where, how about then you then get those scenes? Maybe they are related to Briseis. Briseis. I keep saying it differently. Yeah, they're right first time. Briseis. Hey, Briseis. How about have one of the other women who is in Agamemnon's court, you know, have their experience and then relay it. And then we can kind of have that experience of going maybe through their, or have them be the other perspective. If we're going to keep it first person, 
but keep it with the title of Silent, Silent, Silent Girls. Have the other women of the camp and move between them to then tell what's going on in the different uh, Greek soldiers' courts. I mean, maybe. The There's Tech very, camps. very few scenes where a woman wouldn't be present. I mean, the only ones you can think of are the ones that are in like Achilles and Patroclus' bedchamber. Like, obviously, no one's there in their most private moments. So, do you know what? Maybe this isn't the, the time to tell us about their most private moments. Maybe in Sons of the Girls, we shouldn't get Achilles and Patroclus' and most intimate moments, because that's not this their story this time. Maybe you're right, Duncan. That's actually quite interesting. I hadn't considered the Sons of the Girls, you know, spreading out and uh, encompassing characters like Ithis. However, I kind of do think the point is that Briseis is supposed to be the lens through which we see the suffering of the Greek women, and indeed the way in which her perspective changes on the other captives around her as the story progresses, I think that would be a teeny bit undermined by us getting inside their heads in alternate scenes. That being said, this is why I said that this was sort of a necessary change, because it's a it's the practical choice. I don't think it's especially a stylistically strong choice. Let's not get too hung up on this one element, though. I think I should be clear. This isn't something that I found undermined the book per se. It's just the it was one of these things that I noticed, and I had this weird moment of like, I don't normally notice this. What is that play? Nah, and you shouldn't notice stuff like perspective. Like That's you should it, only really notice like, it when you're going like, can I trust this information when it's in first person and stuff? To kind of draw kind of a, a metaphor similar to this, it's like when you watch a film. And you maybe you notice an effect or you notice a stunt that's been done. And you have that moment where you maybe appreciate the special effect that's gone. It can still be good. You go, oh, that's a really good special effect. There's a scene in The Quiet Place where um, there's a, like a flashback. And the scene goes from being a slow plodding one to like an action one. You can actually see the moment where they change lenses. Uh, and it's really distracting. Like really, the shape of everything on the screen changes. And you go, oh, weird. You know, like, I get the filmmaking decision, but I shouldn't be drawn attention to maybe those decision makings, at least not against my own will. I should be able to go looking for them to appreciate them. And that's part of what kind of the critique of most of books come to. You know, you're looking at the tools being used to appreciate them and get an understanding. Mm. But when you're jarringly brought attention to them, you're like, oh, could that, that, could that have been smoothed out? I think, we've, I do see the I think we've hammered home this point. Well, then. Moving on, Geordie. I've mentioned how this is Briseis' story in the Iliad, and it's also a retelling of the Iliad. How do you think this stands, then, firstly, as a telling of the Iliad? Do you think you got the Iliad out of this? Um. Some hmm. read this as the Iliad. Would you go, yeah, you don't know what the Iliad's about. Boom, there you go. No, no, you, this, is, this is not the authentic Iliad, because the Iliad is fundamentally a criticism of the Iliad. You know, it is it's uh, it is a feminist reading of the Iliad, a reinterpretation, and it's highly critical of the Iliad because it critiques its perspective and it doesn't consider the women in the story to be people. It considers them to be property that can that's hands can be exchanged. Um, and also, uh, if, like I say, it's, it's a criticism. It's not a, a retelling. Not really. 
For example, we have to look at the language of the characters. And I'm not talking about the voice here, I'm now talking about dialogue. Uh, Pat Barker has made a very specific choice, and I even wonder how this would play, like, to an American audience, because this book is quite British. Yeah, you see, I didn't notice this. I think you did notice this, because I'm going to draw your attention to a particular line, which is when Achilles meets Briseis for the first time, meet being a a stretch to its absolute limit, when he acquires Briseis, he he goes up to her, he tilts her chin back with his, his thumb and his finger, he turns to his myrmidons and he says, Cheers, lads. She'll do. I see what you're saying. So you're saying cheers, lads is a British phrase? Absolutely. You're not going to hear an American say that. And very specifically, yeah, cheers. it's not just British. It's lads. It's lad culture, right? Like, it's talking, no, were... it's talking about masculinity itself. Uh, a bit of a jump over the point with me but i get what you're saying it is particularly doing a direct parallel to lag culture and toxicity in our present times yeah lag culture being a sort of a encapsulation of that exactly it's about the toxic way in which men in modern day yeah. view the bodies and the role of women yeah and i think this is i personally really like this decision then even if it kind of slipped me by on a obvious level because everyone I'm like, oh yeah I, I like that comparison i think i definitely picked it up in the sense that particularly the term of the lads because then that put me in the mind of who these soldiers were instantly mm-hmm. when he says that i instantly went from being these stoic like star wars style stormtroopers like all in a neat row to like oh this is a group of 19 year old lads mm-hmm. uh, okay i see where we're coming from and i, I like that because i think that does have humorization and i think I know that some people do kind of critique then that use of more sort of modern language, but I do believe unless you're literally reading the Iliad, you need it to be put through a lens, like a mm-hmm. reinterpretation to the moment you translate it to English, basically, I would always ask you, are you going to translate it to English as it sounds today? Yes, you have to. Like, the answer well, is that you have, you have to. to. And even if you didn't, you're still making a choice not to do that, which is in its own way inauthentic, you know? Well, there is what, no what, then what version part. of English do you, you do? If you say, well, I want it to sound more archaic, I'm like, oh, so what are you going to go for? Like, oh, I'm going to make it sound like Shakespearean English. I'm like, so why have you picked that random exactly. date 400 years ago? Exactly. Why would that particular era of English history be so relevant to these, this history of the Greeks? There was a fairly recent... There was a fairly recent translation of Beowulf, and it basically started with, like, yo, bro, listen up, I'm about to tell you about my boy, (laughs) Beowulf. Because, like, if you translate it, that's what they mean. Like, you could say, lo, and there was a hero named Beowulf, master of the Yates. But by choosing how you translate it, translation is naturally also localization. They're, They're inseparable from one another. Exactly. It's like translating something from French and going, excuse me, you've not done that right. You've uh, translated that as a blue pencil. It should be pencil blue. And you'd be like, yeah, but we've translated it into English. Yes. So we have to move the words around. There is, I, I get the same vibe of that. There is one other thing, though, which is that Briseis is kind of a time traveller. Like, she Oh, is... she does make some comparisons to things, isn't it, that aren't. Yeah, like... She also metaphors, I definitely remember at one point... Definitely some clocks, aren't there? There's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah actually, I forgot about that, but there, there are times when she, like, compares things to clocks and, like, modern things. Like, 
I wouldn't say she ever said it's like she rewound something, but there were definitely times where she'd use modern lingo, which is, again, that's part of a translation. But there is one thing in which I think this kind of steps over the line, more so than just comparing, you know, translating the Iliad. There's a bit where she ref- thinks of Pyra, Pyro, Pyrus? Uh, Pyrus, thank you, Duncan. Well, she thinks of Pyrus as a teenager, and she shouldn't think of him as a teenager. Like, they didn't have teenagers in ancient Greece. You know, the point of the story is that he's barely a man, um, and it's not expressed like that. The idea is that he is somehow still a boy, that he's pimply, that he can't grow a beard and stuff. But that's not really how she should perceive him if she lived back in that time. She is seeing him as a teenager to give us, the reader, the context of what we associate with teenagers. That he's immature, that he's not sophisticated, that he's not a truly grown man. It's something that I once found, going to see quite off track again, but when reading a Conan Pache once, there's a point where something was described as a thundering train. And I had of to go over... Caravans? And, nope, nope. Like a, a steam train. Because it was like a... I think they actually used the word a thundering steam train coming down the track. Wait, did she compare something to a train in this book? I think there is a moment in this book as well. And there's a moment where I had to stop in that book I was reading the the Conan one and go, is this Conan's thoughts or is this the omniscient narrator's thoughts? Because it should be Conan's. Conan uses a limited perspective. You see things through his eyes. Not but I think it will. Yeah. If it's if it's the narrator, if the narrator is describing it, even though it's a third person limited, I was like, I'll let you off. But it's very precisely worded. Conan thought, it, or like it sounded like a blah 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 to Conan or something like that. And I'm like, and I'm like, no, no, no. And this is sort of the the same issue. If this was in like the third person omnipotent bits, it was just in the narration. I'd be like, okay whatevs like it wouldn't bother me much but it's like the process is specifically thinking these things like this is her interpretation again though we could talk out to the same thing we said before it's yeah. about that translation it's about making sure that we understand what process is meant to be going through and how she is feeling yeah. as a character i would and say into the, the right modern place. lingo pushes the line and the like teenage idea goes over the line but by and large, it does work. Toe the line. It, it toes the line. Yes, well done. You managed to keep on the simile. It's something that I kept noticing, but it kept not bothering me. And I think that was that was very healthy. I do know that for some people, they can be quite sensitive to this. I remember ages ago reading Name of the Wind for the first time, having a conversation with a friend who found it very difficult because they use quite a lot of more modernist lingo in that. Mm. And we got a discussion comparing that to, I think it was Children of Huron. Is the book at the time, yeah. and they're like, well, this speak, you know, if they're in like an ancient fantasy world, they should speak more. And they, they took the children who say something like, you know, more kind of ancient. And old. I'm like, what? How? You don't know what either 
they're both fantasy settings. That's right. Like even Tolkien <laughs> was like he wasn't actually writing like he he was writing his best interpretation of what uh, an ancient Saxon would sound like if you translated not even Saxon, older than that. And but you, also, if you translated that, I just that, don't believe that there was ever a time where like the farmer in his field stood up and let out poetry to that. Like people have always spoken to the same. So not saying that he would let out poetry, those uneducated. So what I mean to say is there, I think although the words have changed, I do believe that the, the way we communicate between individuals. So, um, must've always been on a similar level. I, I, I disagree around one level. Like if you read the letters people wrote to each other in the past, they do write in different ways than we communicate. We, we just have a different way of communicating. And it was flowery and different and strange to us back then, but it was normal for them. Um, that is captured and expressed quite normally. But on the point of like actual poetry, like you've got one thing right, which is that Tolkien characters just sometimes erupt into song or into a poem at the drop of a hat. And that's because Tolkien was inspired by ancient texts like the Icelandic sagas. But what you need to consider, Duncan, is that that might actually just have been true. It might just be that in ancient in ancient Iceland, not ancient, but old, old Iceland, people did just make up rhymes. Because they it didn't might have, be true. Yeah, because they didn't have an iPhone. When you're mending a maybe, fence. Maybe, Geordie, it's true. Or maybe that the most artistic, eloquently spoken people were the few who were allowed to write shit down. That might also be the case, but but if you want to consider and it's, the and fact it's survivor's that bias it must, it's in terms not of language. Just, but it's not just... They're all, you don't know anything about the saga of the Icelanders, Duncan. I actually really don't, so no, I'm so, completely going off topic historically. Geordie, do you want to school me? or? I mean, I'm not going to talk to you about the saga of the Icelanders, and there is survivorship bias, and it's possible that people didn't just make up rhymes, but when you consider something, Duncan... If you go to Detroit, Michigan, you're going to find a lot of people who can just make up rhymes of a spot because it's called hip hop. You can just do it, Duncan. You can just freestyle rap. It's possible. But not for me, Geordie. Not for me. And And so it is impossible. You're right. One thing that I really actually liked in this book, not compared to anything else I've read recently, is the character of Achilles' mother, Thetis. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking of a character that maybe has either underplayed or given multiple perspectives in the past, I really enjoyed seeing this character, thinking from uh, Briseis' eyes, as genuinely a bit more caring, seeing this character who loves their child and is very sad because they know what's going to happen, the mm. fate of Achilles. Mm. And I think this is very important to have someone who sort of kind of reminds you, no matter all the things that Achilles has done, or is actively doing. There are definitely parts in this book where you dislike Achilles. Would you disagree on that statement? Good, glad. I'm oh yeah, glad we're on that sure. page. No, for sure. Like he's a rapist. Thank you. Um, so you dislike, him. but I really felt it's nice to have this character is still looking at their child and okay, I love you. I want the best for you, and you can relate to that. You can see, yeah, I get why you like him. You know, he he was once a small child who was innocent. He is not now. Definitely not. But I do see that he mm. was once. And I really relate to you, the fact that you've had to go through and this. Also, and also... You, you know, you didn't choose any of this either. Not your fault. The child that you loved is now turned into this man. Yeah. It, yes. And also, I would say on a similar line, 
um, the book forces you to get a different perspective on Achilles towards the end. Like, you're in Briseis's head for the first time, but you're also in her head as she has this really, really strange turn on Achilles where she starts to not hate him as much and gets a sense of not love at all, but familiarity with him. And it's it's really uh, interesting because it's not a sort of relationship you see expressed in fiction uh, well, almost ever. There is a particular style of story but it's kind of obsessed with the idea of Stockholm Syndrome the idea of people falling in love with their captors here's a fun fact Duncan about Stockholm Syndrome you ready for this is it not real it's not real it's myth it's not it doesn't exist it was made up by a police psychologist to explain the behavior of hostages who justifiably uh were trusted their captors more than the police because the police were being really dangerous and escalating things and to excuse this, he, co- he invented a new syndrome, which doesn't exist. But you see her feelings start to change towards her captor in a way that is very slow and very confusing, like emotionally confusing for you to read it and Briseis, and also understandable. Like, it's actually extremely nuanced and well-written. For me, I definitely felt it, it kind of started on that level of it was the fear dropping away first. The start process is scared of this man, as she should be, because he can have her killed. He can kill her himself. He does not need any justification or reasoning to enter and her he life. he repeatedly rapes her. Yes. And he murdered her siblings. That's right. I don't right. know if he did it personally, but he said, oh, he did do it personally, I remember, actually. He did do it personally, so it happened. And that fear kind of drops away with... Bummer. It's, it's a heavy book. I, there's no way you can kind of move past that. It is, so it makes it really confusing, or not confusing, but as the fear kind of falls back, particularly I think we it starts to happen when uh, we get to know Patroclus a bit more, and Briseis sees his perspective on Achilles. And also, when Achilles has his, like, persona butchered by the revelation that he's just a little boy who wants his mummy. Now, this was a very interesting scene. When I first read it, I actually, this is the only scene where I was like, oh, I was not ready for this re-kind of insight into Achilles. And this links very strongly into the what I said about yeah. Thesis, this role in this book, and her perspective as, as the mother. Literal Christian Grey shit. Yes, let me explain for everyone. Obviously, we all know Achilles' mother was a Oceanid? the technical term all right nymph of the sea this is a new one for me oh, i've been reading mythos yeah, she was uh, do you mean a dryad a dryad what dryads of the of trees the great thing about no naiads are for the trees and dryads. dryads are for the water and it's amusing because they're dry and that's ironic because they're wet brilliant so sea goddess sea yeah a minor sea goddess so he has this huge association with the ocean and we see him multiple times. He, he likes to go for runs by the beach. He he swims out to sea to commune with his mother, talk things through. And then he has that sort of a relationship. But also literally to just be close to her, even if they're not talking. He's just in her embrace. One might say in a sort of Freudian sense, returning to the womb at first very subtly suggested and then hammered over the head in the last part of the book. It's like, he's returning to the womb. He's returning to the womb! 
But in the early parts of the book, where we were being subtle, this is interesting. Yeah. Well, not that subtle. No. But still, when he, when Briseis comes back, covered in the smell of the sea, and he gets into bed with her, he starts like suckling on her teats and moaning and acting like an actual grown baby um, because he's so fucking damaged. Yes, this is his infantilization of Achilles, which does play into a lot of the men that are displayed in this war camp. That does kind of go out to a lot of the other soldiers as well. Like we said at the end, we've got Pyrus, who's described as a teenager. A lot of the men are described as only boys. I think this happens kind of throughout. But no, particularly in Achilles. He is, just has his mum issues. And I'm not quite sure how I feel about this. Because in a similar way, I'm like, is this trying to say that this is why he acts how he acts elsewhere? That he's just a child trying to project this toxic yeah. masculinity is, and that's the reason, because his mum left him when he yeah, was eight years sure. old. Yeah, he's, he's, he's he wants his mummy, and he's dam- he's emotionally damaged, and so he just does what the men tell him to do, what the men expect him to do, is be a killing machine. In fact, that's what the Song of Achilles is about. I'm breaking the seal, Duncan. Jordi, 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 you haven't done fifty minutes. I'm disappointed. I don't care. So, Song of Achilles was about Achilles having expectations put upon him by the other men because of toxic masculinity. They think he's the greatest of the Greeks, he's going to be a killing machine, um, but no, there's more to Achilles than that. He's actually quite soft and loves to play the liar. And this book walks this really fine line where all the things which Song of Achilles believes about Achilles are still true in this book. But he also just has these extra layers of weird damage put on top of him. Where, for example, he has his desperate mummy issues, which he did kind of have in Song of Achilles, but not to the same extent. And his mother was viewed in a way less sympathetic sense because the main character of her book was Patroclus. And Thetis didn't like Patroclus. And they didn't like each other. And he, he was scared of her. I like the fact this book is more sympathetic to, to Thetis. I feel like it is like an actual kind of misstep. In the Song of Achilles. She's it's a sympathetic almost, character. No, I, actually, we, we talked about this last last year, actually, was that, that Patroclus is still wrapped up in the lens of toxic masculinity, and he, even he can't see that Thetis is a victim, and he can't empathise with her. Which is why I'm so glad that I got to see this new perspective on this character. I'm like, I'm sure that this perspective is out there, and I'm glad to have read it in Sons of the Girls on Thetis. To have her sympathetic, I do... Oh, what am I trying to say? Am I trying to say I'm okay? So I'm glad that it shows that you know he's damaged. I I do like the compatibility there in all these other images. This has this other angle which makes sense. I just didn't want this angle to be taken by anyone as a sort of the this is the core justification. It's it's not just because he was he has this damage. It's because he has this damage and then is thrust into this incredibly high masculine toxic environment and world. That is sort of yeah, the, the two I would parts not of it. Want people, I would not want people to go away from this book and say, yeah, if someone asked them who is Achilles, to give the same account of Achilles that they read in this book, um, because this is very deliberately like a readjustment of the lens. It's not supposed to be an accurate representation of the Iliad. It's a criticism of the Iliad. And I would be concerned if someone went away from this. Um... Like, for example, I feel like if you read Song of Achilles, you would have a better sense of who Achilles is 
in the Iliad and have a better sense of the way in which the book deviates from what it's supposed to be about than you wouldn't necessarily from this one, where it feels like it's kind of put its thumb on the scale a teeny bit more with the whole mummy issues thing. But that aside, I do think this book still executes all the elements surrounding Achilles, uh, Patroclus, and the actual traditional Iliad plot points brilliantly well. Personally, I think they're like, yep, they're there. They're, they're coherent. They make sense, particularly around Hector and his death. That was executed so, so, yeah, so well. absolutely. Oh, wonderful. Oh, sorry, I need to bring this up. The moment this book, I kind of wanted to give it a little, a little clap. I was like... I like what you did there. <laughs> yeah. And that's when Priam, King Priam Troy. Priam. Priam, thank you. King Priam Troy comes and he does his kneeling before Achilles and goes, I've done what no man before me has ever done. I kissed the hand of the man that killed my son. And mm. then there's this great favor of Cersei just standing there and she's like, yeah, and I've done what many, many women have had to do before me, which is sleep with the man that killed my my husband, my brothers. Yes, yes. Else. And I'm just like, right, thank you. You have, you have taken an iconic moment and you have summed up just, maybe not in the words that like the idiot would have said, but in the tone, in the emotional feels of what Vicius could have, could have, like character could have been going through. I'm like, nice. Yes, it's all about that lens again. You're right about the death of Hector and the subsequent of, of Hector. Like, um, you know, you know, Duncan, that the opening lines of the Iliad are all about the rage of Achilles. That's what the Iliad is about. It's about Achilles' anger. And this book really, really expresses that Achilles' anger is like a sort of insanity. It's kind of terrifying. Yes, it's part of what drives the fear that we see in Brazil. And where her fear kind of drops away, even though he's getting angry, he's still angry and still unhinged. She almost kind of just, I don't know if it's like, feels like she controlled it or just becomes a little bit just unfazed by it. Yeah. Towards the she, end. She's because she knows that he's just a big baby. You know, she's not, she thinks of him just having basically a tantrum and she doesn't respect him at this point. And so she like, defies him in ways that she never has before and it's only after this when he's let Hector's body go that they're able to actually have like not healthy I don't know what to call it a slightly less fucked up relationship I think that's a nice way to put it slightly less fucked up slightly less slightly they're gonna have a baby yes lovely I want to talk about this Stordy, as you know, I have never actually read the Iliad. Have you? Alright, it embarrasses me to say this, but no, I've never read the Iliad. I I keep meaning to, but it's hard, Duncan. It's so many lists of names. I'll do it before we read the David Gemmell one, I promise, okay? You you go and read the original Iliad, and I'll go and read Stephen Fry's Troy. (laughs) But what I wanted to ask, then, is this question, which is... Briseis' fate is very different in Science of the Girls versus the other text, some of Achilles. Do you know which one's uh, more accurate to the original story? I can't remember what happened to Song of Achilles, to be honest. Okay, she this died? is fun. Yes, she She's does. Sacrificed? She is not sacrificed. So, this is a very different diversion, and if... We don't know what the original version is that really uh, hamstring our critique, so I may have to quickly look it up. But in Silence of the Girls, Briseis falls pregnant with Achilles' child. Achilles 
said that one of his generals must marry her. Uh, partly because he knows that Patroclus said that Achilles would marry her. And he wants a good life for his child. And Achilles knows that he ain't living very long. In fact, I don't think he lives out the day in this book. So she marries one of his generals, becomes his proper wife. And it kind of is on a hopeful sort of note. Uh, bear in mind, she's now his wife, not his slave. So that's good. That is definitely a step in the right direction, uh, given this society. And she kind of goes, mm. he's a fool, but he's a he's a nice fool. There are worse. And you're like, yes, we have definitely seen worse over the course of this book. You, you take him. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, in Song of Achilles, Brasis is ki- murdered by Pyrus. Yeah. He throws Sad. a spear through her because she tries to run away. And I was like, I, I need to know which who which author made the conscious decision. Did Pat Barker decide she Brasis deserved a happy ending, or did Madeline Miller decide that to ram home the point that Pyrus happy ending? Is, okay, that is open to interpretation. More upbeat than her death, I would argue. She get she gets exchange as property. It, yes, that is true. I, I would still say that's more upbeat than her murder. That is open to debate and is openly debated According in this According to Robert book. Bell, following his death, Briseis was given to one of Achilles' commanders of arms, just as his armour had been. Okay, well, that's Eve, That's not worse than this book. Gosh. So. Briseis does not get a happy ending. No, that's the point. The I point know. is that it sucks. Mind you, there is a sequel. Maybe they all get happy endings after that. Maybe they do. You talking about the Odyssey or uh, Pat Barker's follow-up book? <laughs> Unless she's written her version of the Penelope ad, I'm talking about the Women of Troy. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, I still consider it slightly more upbeat. It's a hopeful ending for Briseis. It's like she's going to keep going. She's going to keep fighting against all this set against her. I don't. I. I mean, I don't believe that. But whatever, man. Maybe the next book is hopeful. I somehow doubt it. That's how... Did you... I walked away from Silence of the Girls with the ultimate feeling that this is a story of people who have been such who have been absolutely downtrodden and forgotten about. And it's the... Interpretation is like, no, we do have a voice. We do count. And the ending, like from Fosia's own perspective, she's like, okay, this isn't good, but I can keep trying. I can keep working with this. I won't give up. I guess you're right. That's like, I can keep living. Which is its own, I guess, its own victory. Again, I refer you, after reading everything else that happens in this book, I think that is a victory by the end. I guess you're right. I guess you're right. I mean, it's not exactly going to end with a limit women's liberation movement, is it? That would be extremely disingenuous of the author. I guess Perse has got as much as she could hope for then. Bummer. Major bummer. Duncan, let's wrap it up. Um, Sands of the Girls is a really, really well-written book. I wouldn't... I think I just prefer Song of Achilles, but I think they're in similar weight classes in terms of... in terms of quality of book, as though you can compare those things. I guess we are in a better position to compare them, considering they're about the same source material and the same characters. It's sort of like two people being given the same writing prompt. Write the Iliad from someone else's perspective. Someone picked Patroclus and someone picked Perseus. I guess I preferred some Achilles because I enjoyed not only the reframing of the Iliad, but I enjoyed the romance aspects of it. Whereas in this book, I enjoyed the prose in the Perseus sections a lot. 
a slightly lesser degree in the Achilles and Patroclus sections. Um, but I also found him a major buzzkill. <laughs> like, I just don't read a lot of sad books, I guess is the point. And this is a real, uh, real downer. It's just not to my taste. I believe I must be in a similar camp. I certainly, again, going back to that comparison, actually, no, without the comparison, let's forget some Achilles exists for the rest of it. Do I recommend Sons Girls? I do. If you're interested in the Iliad and you want to see another perspective, I would recommend you have an understanding of the Iliad and the story of Troy first, so you kind of understand what this and is And I would get that from Song of Achilles, because well, I unreservedly recommend that book. Because that book, you don't need to know anything about the Iliad to read it. Which is a, a great strength in that favour. You say that in the same weight class. I'm going to go and say, I really enjoy Sons of Girls, but I would put it just t- if Song of Achilles, I really do think Song of Achilles is in that A ranking. I would put yeah, Sons of Girls. it's one of the best books we've read in a podcast, isn't it? Without a doubt in my mind. Sons of Girls, I would put maybe in the B. I do think it's just a rank below for me, particularly in the prose. I know we said it was sort of a little thing, we talked a lot about it, but there was definitely bits, particularly when it was just not giving me Briseis' perspective, when it was just kind of telling me the Iliad, which I enjoyed, but I was feeling like, oh, you're not you're not capitalising on what makes you good. And there's a lot, particularly in those latter two-thirds, where I did feel like it was just Achilles and Patroclus for quite extended periods. I'm like, come on, this, this is a Briseis story, let's, let's get back to her. I think it was a, maybe yeah. had a bit more process and was a little bit more laser focus on her experience. I actually might have rank would rank it a little higher, but as it is, still good. So it's a little long. Like I feel like it just could have been a shorter story, but I guess that's also because of the whole Achilles sections, which is the same criticism we just made. And I guess that is the end, the end of silence, Duncan. Which means it's time for noise, noise, noise. What are we gonna do next time, Duncan? I've been thinking long and hard about this, Geordie. I've been thinking about what would be a great read, what would be something maybe a bit different, a bit out there. And I've often been thinking, well, what, you know, the last book we just read, Geordie, Science of the Girls, that was sort of my pick, but it was technically your pick. So I can't, I can't, I can't feel like I'm in your debt. It makes me feel uncomfortable. So, Geordie... Are we just going to choose books for each other from now on? Well... In a way, Geordie, I want to read next week a book from a very specific series, or a story from a specific series, but I'm going to let you pick exactly which one. I want to read a book of Elric by Michael Moore. Oh. oh, well, I don't know which one we ought to do. All right, so I guess I do know, which is that we have to do The Dreaming City, right? I think we do. We did Elric of Melnibone. And that feels like it's the next logical step. It certainly is. It's the story of the prince coming home and laging siege to his city. Which is insane. It's crazy. That's where the story began. That's bizarre. But yeah, I mean, what else can we do? It has to be the Dreaming City and I guess the subsequent two, whatever they're called. The Dreaming City is the one that really stands out. What's it called? Jesting with Chaos? Uh, It's those that are collected in the Weird of the White Wolf collection from that'll be what the episode's called <laughs> i look forward to reading it with you next time if you have enjoyed listening to us and if you have also read science of girls or song of achilles because that's related vicariously then why not let us know your thoughts you can tell us about it at our instagram this is just fantasy podcast 
or at our gmail it's this fantasy podcast at gmail.com please do follow us on instagram where we have plenty of extra posts and reviews about the other things that we've been reading Geordie posted an excellent review in the interim. He went to go and see the Death Note stage play. I did. Go and check out his full thoughts on Instagram. Duncan, you know, I just... First of all, uh, Death Note. Very good performances. Uh, let down by some audio and lighting cues. Probably needed a bit more rehearsals, but the main performances were very good. Especially the girl playing Misa Misa. I actually heard her perform before. I thought she was very good then, but she was extremely good as Misa. Just electric. Um, also, very appropriate, Duncan, that we're going to be doing uh, the albino Prince Elric. Because today, I found my first grey hair. Geordie, how old are you? I'm 25, Duncan. Do you know how old I was when I found my first grey hair? 16? 14. <laughs> Sorry, Duncan. Good night, everyone. Sorry. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>